So you should have an outline this morning. We're going to continue our Foundations of Marriage series, and we're going to talk about the responsibilities uh, or the obligations of the husband. So let's open up in prayer before we start. Uh, Father, we come to you to hear your word. We pray that uh, personally, Lord, that I want to go beyond your word, that we would receive your truth, uh, and you would use your Holy Spirit to activate that in our, in our hearts and in our lives this morning. Amen. <clears throat> and so we're not really, uh, as we get started today, um, one of the things I want to, you should have an outline and that top section as we continue our series, uh, we do want to emphasize uh, it's a calling to foundations. This is not some high-level, collegiate-level marriage stuff. These are just elementary, foundational issues. And so uh, what are the collegiate-level things? Well, you guys can figure that out. Once you've been married 40 years, you'll figure out something. And, but these are just foundations. They're those supposed to be very basic. And usually, uh, it's just kind of an innate thing. If you want to study something in the Bible or some topic, you just search that word or you search something around that word, and you look at the direct verses that correlate to that topic. And that's generally what we're doing in this series. We're only looking at a list of maybe uh, 10 Bible verses and we're seeing just what is the plain teaching of the scripture in accordance with a marriage and child rearing and what are we to do about it. And so we do want to be very careful not to go beyond the scriptures or in, imply beyond the scriptures of, of what's clearly taught. And so when we get to the responsibilities, it's, it's just I wish there were a Bible verse that said the wife has to do all the dishes, but it's just not there. I wish it was. Uh, I'm still looking for one. That, but it's not there. And so uh, we want to be careful just to look at what the plain, plain teaching is, and I'm not trying to go beyond that. And so a couple weeks ago, when Daniel talked about headship, um, uh, and, and the role of the husband, or the, uh, yeah, the role of the husband as the head, and therefore he's, he's the head of his wife, and therefore he's the head of his children, um, meaning that the primary weight of responsibility is on his shoulders. His wife may sin, and she is culpable, but he is responsible. And so before there's a stream of, uh, Daniel did a great job, but before there's any stream of authority, there's a stream of responsibility and ownership to headship. Headship isn't, isn't mostly about, I get to say the last word, or I get to do something, or I get to, to tell you how it is. It's it's I'm responsible. And so when you stream out of that, out of that headship um, that, that our scriptures put forth, then you get to into what are the, you know, the everyday roles, what are the obligations of the, the husband and the wife. And so that's kind of the, um, uh, that's kind of the way I'm looking at that is what is the, what is the role, what is their kind of title, and what do they do? And so if the husband's role is, is the head, what is, he, what is his obligations? And so uh, we're going to primarily be looking at the responsibility of the husband to protect, to provide, and to nourish. And so we sh we're going to look at the same verses that we've looked at quite a bit. And so let's start with protection. Uh, Genesis 2.15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
And so the word we're looking at here is to keep it. He was supposed to, other translations say that he was supposed to cultivate, he was putting the garden to cultivate and to protect it uh, or, or beautify it and to keep it. But the Hebrew word there for keep is the same word used in Genesis when Cain said, Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to be watching over him? Am I supposed to be protecting him? Am, am I the guy that's in charge of that? The answer was yes, but... Uh, it's also the same Hebrew word when the cherubim was put in front of after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden uh, and the cherubim with the flaming sword was uh, instructed to keep the way of the tree of life. He was guarding it. He was protecting it. He was making sure that Adam and Eve did not come back to the tree of life. And he protected it with a sword, with a flaming sword that pointed all directions. And so it wasn't a passive uh, protection. It was very active and, uh, and the last one I want to mention is the same Hebrew word uh, when God calls Abraham to keep the covenant. That is to protect it, to, to watch it, to be diligent over it. And so it, that word keep just basically means to keep, guard, observe, to watch, and to be on guard. And so the first things we see, one of the first things we see in Scripture is the call for the husband to protect, to watch over his wife. And um, which just means that he should have a, a disposition towards protection. And I think that goes, that goes beyond physical protection. And so most of us would understand and, and agree and, and just innately go into that the man, is, he's bigger, he's stronger. Uh, if, if some assailant comes into the house, you know, it's always like when you get married, for some reason it goes through the, the man's head. like, I'm going to sleep on the side of the bed that's closest to the door in case someone breaks in. Like, I've never heard that ever happening, but in case it does, we're ready because we're on that side of the bed. Uh, and, and so men should generally have a disposition of just physically protecting their wives. They should be ready uh, to, to guard them uh, physically. Um, but I think the, the, even in just context of the garden there, when the serpent comes in, there was no physical danger presumably, when the serpent came and talked to Eve. And so Adam wasn't, had no need to protect her physically. She wasn't being physically assaulted. But there was another layer of protection that, that was there that he, that he failed in. And so the Bible puts out a couple scenarios. Um, let's go to Numbers 30. We're going to read 3 through 15. I didn't put it on your outline because then we just wouldn't have any space. This is about vows, and we're going to look that vows were different for men and women in Old Covenant Israel. I'll go back to verse uh, 2 real quick. It says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Well, that's revolutionary. If you make a vow, man, keep it. <laughs> if your yes is yes, let your, if your, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just keep your word. Right? That's, you get one verse for men. That's all you need. Verse 3. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth and her father hears of her vow, of her pledge, by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, 
Then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her, because her father opposed her. If she marries a husband while under, under vows, or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears of it, then her vows shall stand, and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her word, makes void her vow that was on her, and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house, or bound herself by a pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her, and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband bakes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish, or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them, because he has said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. And so there you have it. It's very different for men. Men, if you make a vow, it doesn't matter if you said it foolishly or if it was uttered in haste, you're going to do it. You better do it. Women, on the other hand, you get this long list of, of this case law that if she's in her father's house and if her father hears of it and if he doesn't say anything, then that's him saying, then you're going to have to do it uh, if he doesn't oppose her. But if he does oppose her, her father, he has the ability to say, no, 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 that was a rash foul. That's, you're getting way in over your head. Uh, we're going to make that null and void. And he is, is able to save her from that. And then it transfers the same thing to the, the husband. That if, uh, if a wife makes, it says, uh, what is the verbiage? Uh, a useless utterance. That if she uh, utters something that is, is beyond her ability or is a rash vow, he has the ability to make it null and void in order to protect her. It's not, uh, it's not because he wants to be uh, nitpicky and demeaning. It shouldn't be. It should be because it was a rash vow. You're getting way in over your head or this was something too much. I don't think we're going to be able to fulfill this vow. I will kind of cancel it. But if you paid attention, who bears the iniquity? The husband does. The husband bears the shame and bears the iniquity. And so what we had in these case laws, and there's other things, there's other instances uh, that we could get into, especially in the, in the case laws in the Pentateuch, where most of those laws were established to protect women. It wasn't to create a different standard by which men and women could be judged, because if you were to Take your choice. The women get a way out. They do. If their husband or if, if they're younger in their father's house, 
say it's, it's a rash foul, it was, it was done foolishly, it was done in haste, we could nix this thing, but the, the husband or the, or the father of the young lady uh, bears the iniquity. They bear the shame, right? And so there were societal ways set up to protect women. And so uh, I was trying to think of a modern-day example, and so here's, just a, here's my best shot at it. And so if we're having a pile, or let's say we're having a church uh, bake sale, and, and my wife says, I'm going to bake 15 pies. And I say, my heart says, yes, that's great. I love it. Because if we don't sell them all, we're going to bring them home. Uh, but we just had a baby, and, well, you just had a baby, and you're kind of busy, and uh, we're not getting a lot of sleep. I think 15 pies might be a little too much. Maybe we could do like three, right? And, and so she signed her name up on the, the bake sheet, and it's 15 pies. And I, it wasn't made in my sight, but the scripture said if I come and hear of it, I could, I could make that null and void. And so I say, oh, hey, that's, uh, that's too much. That's, I don't think you're going to be able to handle that. That's a lot of work. And, and we got a lot going on at home. We're going we're gonna to null and void this thing. And so scratch your name off on the pie sheet, and whoever's heading up the bake sale says, oh, now we're missing 15 pies. And i got to go to that person and say, hey, I'm sorry. We're just getting a little in over our heads right now. I apologize. I'm going to bear the iniquity. Can I, can I buy some pies? Can I, how can I make it up? Right? I could, we do have 15 apple pie fillings thanks to uh thanks to some lovely ladies in our church um i don't know where i came up with that 15 pie example it was it was on my mind uh we do we do have the ability to make 15 pies right now but but in that example then the husband goes and says hey i'm sorry we're not going to be able to do this how can i make it right he has to bear the iniquity he has to make it right uh, but he could, he could protect his wife and make that promise, make that oath null and void. And so the idea isn't to be nitpicky, to be overbearing, to say, no, I don't like this one or I do like this one. It's to be protective. And so um, men should be, and, and husbands should be looking to protect their wives in more just a physical sense. They, sh- they should. Uh, we have this... Um, innate thing if you're walking with, with your wife down the street and you have this innate like sense. I know every guy has this. It's like, I'm going to walk on the side of the road where if, for some reason, if a car jumps the curb and they just jump it two feet, I'll get hit instead of her. And those scenarios aren't real. For the most part, <laughs> that could happen. Uh, and it's good to have a mindset and a demeanor to protect your wife physically as you should and you should be prepared. If that means uh, you have to work out or you have, to, uh, you have to think and you have to be ready to jump into action. And those, those situations do come, uh, do come into play. But having, I think to go even further, what we see in the scripture is a demeanor of an overall protection, not just in, in rash vows, but, and we'll see how this plays out in, uh, in other ways through, through provision and, and through through nourishing, but you should have an overall demeanor of I'm going to protect her. I'm going to be kind of head over her so that she is is safe. She's safe from physical danger. She's safe from spiritual danger. She's safe from from all dangers. She's safe from herself uh, if if there was a rash foul, right? And so 
uh, husbands should be thinking and, and praying into that. And so the next one is provide. Husbands are called to provide. And so 1 Timothy 5.8, this is the one where we try to like gloss over. We read this real quick and we're like, yeah, let's go to the next one. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so uh, this is just like a simple, straightforward teaching that we often dismiss. And if you go through Paul's epistles or any of the epistles, there's usually like a chapter or two where there's a a discourse on theology and how great Christ is. And, and we get the gospel, and then he's like, hey, uh, if a man doesn't make enough money to feed his family and provide, then he's basically an unbeliever. He's actually worse. If he says he's a Christian, if, if, he's, if he says he loves the Lord, but, but he, he can't provide, you know, outside of God's providence, there are certainly things that come up where in God's providence you have an illness or, or something just strikes you that's way out of your control, that you're, you have an ability to provide. Those things happen. That's not what the scriptures are talking about. Normal men uh, who have the ability to work and to, and to make income and to provide for their families but don't are worse than an unbeliever. And so if a husband says that he loves the Lord, he's just, he, he does all these spiritual disciplines with his, with his wife and with his kids, but he doesn't make enough money, uh, he's not actually in that great of condition. And so oftentimes when we see this, this kind of long discourse of the gospel and different things in scripture, uh, then we get like these like really practical lessons that like, like, you know, you go through Ephesians and then it like culminates like, like how were the, uh, we were chosen before the foundation of the world and we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith. And he's like, husbands, love your wives. And you're like, oh, that's the culmination of the gospel in my life. <laughs> like, like love my wife and wash her in the word. Because um, that would be the, in, you know, Paul moved by the Holy Spirit in that discourse, in, in that epistle, is saying, if the gospel is living in your life, this is what it's going to look like. And so uh, the, the call to provide for your, for your wife and for your family is a high calling. And it goes beyond, again, that's, that doesn't sound very spiritual, uh, but it is. And, and, and just so you're clear, this is only directed towards men in this verse. Because um, if I know we get the English translation or transliteration, uh, and it says, if he doesn't provide, he is worse than an unbeliever. And those are masculine nouns. But if you read in a couple of verses before and a couple of verses after, it goes into saying, you know, don't, you know, enroll a widow who is truly a widow. Well, if if women were expected to provide for the household, there's no such thing as a widow who needs, who needs help, who needs physical uh, income help. There's just a woman who just needs to work harder, right? If, if the expectation was for men and women to provide and, and, and the husband dies, then the woman just needs to get a better job. She just needs to make more money. But that's not the case. We have widows who get uh, physical aid, and are commanded to in the scriptures. And so, it just wouldn't make any sense if it was applying to women. And, and so, one of the reasons why, this is just a personal thought, uh, that I think, that you only, this is like one of the main verses you get about a man providing for his household. And you don't get a lot of other verses. And primarily, I think partially is because of the culture that the Lord had, had sovereignly designed that, 
the, when the scriptures were written in the first century, that it was normal for that, that if uh, it was an agrarian culture largely, so if you, there weren't a lot of women working out on the farms and in, in the fields, there were occasionally, but it was very hard, very tedious work. And, we, uh, and they didn't have like modern things like bottles to feed your baby. So if you had children, the women were the only option, right? We're so blessed now through technology that I get to wake up in the middle of the night and feed Caleb two or three times. Super blessing. Very happy. <laughs> Very tired. <laughs> but, right, if in, in you know, a hundred years ago, it wasn't exactly an option. And so the Lord had designed that, that the, uh, uh, the scriptures be written in that cultural context. And so this doesn't mean, just to be clear, this doesn't mean that a wife cannot work. Just because it says that the man has to provide doesn't mean that the woman can't work. Nowhere in Scripture do we see uh, a picture of where the, the woman is prohibited from working, prohibited from making income, and exactly the opposite is, we'll get to it in two teachings, where a woman is actually called to be industrious. She's actually... Uh, uh, I think going against the scriptures if she's not being industrious, producing something. But the the weight of provision, the weight of supplying food and clothing should not be on her shoulders. I think that's where the, the scriptures rest, is the weight, the obligation, the burden to provide should be lifted off her shoulders. And so it doesn't mean that she cannot work, Doesn't the scriptures don't lead in that way. Uh, in any sense, I don't see that, but it is is a call that the, the stress should be off her shoulders. And so what I think you want to do is to remove the, the necessity, the obligation, and the burden of the wife to produce income and to provide material for the family. I think that's just a basic calling of the scriptures of what a man should, should shoot for. Of uh, That you should, if, even if your wife makes 10 times as much as you, I think you just live within the, the man's means and and whatever she makes and whatever's income she makes, that's added to the family. But when you live outside of those, the man's means, then I think that puts more stress on, on the woman. And so, again, apart from the providence of God, there are, of course, incidents that, that are outside of a man's control that limits his ability to produce income, to produce for his family, and God gives direction in those terms. But generally speaking, the, the weight should be lifted off of, of the, the wife's shoulders. And so uh, she should be free from, I think, every burden to provide for her family. And so, um, so consequently, uh, you should live in the means within the husband. And so uh, what it goes even further is what I just espoused is where it said provide for, especially of your household. But if you read the scripture closely, which we can, again, it says, but if, uh, especially for the members, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household. And so there seems to be an obligation for men to be able to provide for not just my wife and my kids, but it goes, it goes broader than that. And the culmination of what he's saying, what Paul's saying here, is that if you neglect this, then your faith is, is void. And it's very common in Scripture. Um, one of the things I love is, is it's very common in Scripture that where it says, you know, here's the gospel, here's all these things, and if you don't do this, you're just an unbeliever. 
Like you're just, you're just, your faith is worthless. And you're like, oh, uh, I should take that one a little bit seriously. Maybe I should think about that one. One of my favorite ones is in James 1.26, just as an, another example of when he says, whoever doesn't bridle his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. And I always read that, I'm like, well, like, like, is that like fully bridled? <laughs> because I say some pretty flippant things sometimes. Uh, and if I didn't, then I, I wouldn't have to apologize as much, but that's a good goal to have. But is, is my religion worthless? Uh, that's maybe a, a reasonable question for you to ask yourself. And so look at the previous verses in 1 Timothy. I'm going to read this out of the, the NASB, verses um, 3 and 4. But it says, honor widows who are actually widows. And uh, I don't like to do a lot of Greek or Hebrew gymnastics, but it is helpful sometimes to look at, at various words. And sometimes we can think of widows as, or as honor as just giving some kind of respect. But the, the, the Greek word there is to value them, to add a fixed value to them. And contextually, it, it's talking about giving widows money anyways. So honor widows who are actually widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to show proper respect to their own family and to give back compensation to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. And so if you skip a couple uh, verses, and then when it talks about a, a widow in the context of a church, is that they shouldn't be enrolled if they have this, this, and this. And so one of those things that they're looking for is, do they have children who can help them? Don't jump steps and try to get income from the church, which it's not bad to get income from the church if you're in need, but take the proper steps, and what the Lord's saying is, is your own relatives, your children or grandchildren should first provide. And so if you read it backwards, that means if you are a man and that you, you've got a mom, you've got a grandma, they might not be alive, but certainly you did at some point, and if you're an adult and you're vocationally have an ability to work, your goals should be, be able to provide for your household and to jump in and help your parents and your grandparents if the need arises, right? In the context of this, is if, if there's a widow, if, if, your, uh, if your father dies or your grandfather dies and your mom or your, your grandma is just vocationally not able to cut it and they can't provide, you should be able to make enough to produce and jump in to help them. That is the man's obligation. And so our Lord taught on this also in Mark 7, 8 through 13. If you, uh, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, <clears throat> you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God. That's a monetary offering. Then you are no longer permitted, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God in your traditions that you have handed down and any such thing you do. So even our Lord taught that there was an obligation on the sons to provide for their parents in some situations. Now, normally, if your parents are vocationally secure, and even the Proverbs say a good man leaves an inheritance to his, to his children's children, to his grandchildren, 
And that's what you should look to do. You shouldn't look to be poor in old age and be like, man, I can't wait to suck all the money out of my children's wallets. I can't wait. My time is coming. (laughs) I really hope they get vacationally secure so that I could go on vacation uh, or something or live in luxury. And that's not what the scriptures are pointing to. If there's a a need, if there's something, what you should be looking to do, a man should should be looking so vocationally secure and to produce enough that he produces and leaves an inheritance at least two generations down. And I'm pretty sure the the proverb says a good man. It doesn't even say a righteous man. So that's just like a, like, good man's here, righteous man is up here. And so maybe if uh, if you're righteous, it would be like your great-grandchildren or something. But anyways, uh, so there is a, a call for men to be vocationally secure, to produce enough to provide for their parents if the need arises, or even, even their grandparents. And so that means you have to be ordering your life, men, largely around your vocation. And vocations, um, what the first thing you should be looking for is, does it make enough? Mo- well, I'm sorry, let's go back. The first thing you should be looking for isn't moral. Is it acceptable? You should, if it's immoral, don't do it, right? And we can look to the scriptures if you want to find out what immoral work would look like. But the next thing you should ask yourself is, does it make enough money? Because that is is a very high calling for men to be able to do that. Because I, I don't really know any other way around it besides unless you, you know, something happens to you, something happens to your family, and you can't provide. But if if you haven't aligned your life to be able to provide and jump in, if your parents need it or your grandparents need it, then where's your faith? How much faith do you really have? And, and so uh, you should be looking to take the stress off your wife primarily first to, to, to need to provide. She shouldn't be worrying about like, are we going to make enough uh, food now? Uh, are we going to have enough food? Are we going to have enough stuff to, to, to live and now you might need to adjust your way of life, right? That's real. You might have a two-income household, which is certainly fine, and then your, your uh, way of life increases and instead of going on you know, a day trip, you're going on three, four vacations a year, and then uh, I, you get convicted or, or for some reason you lose some income, and now you've got to hone it down to just your husband's income. You might have to change your way of life a little bit to, to go around that. Um, and that's fine, but that the stress shouldn't be on your wife to provide whatever she makes. That's great. I love it. I think women should make a lot of money, uh, help with a vacation fund or something. And, um, but it shouldn't, but she shouldn't feel any stress to provide. And a man should look to be so vocationally equipped that he could provide all the needs for his family and for his, his immediate relatives if need. And so when a man looks for a job, any, any lawful work that produces enough, you should just be proud. And it doesn't matter if you're a PhD or a factory worker. You know, we have, um, I don't know about in our church culture, but in the brawler society, we're, we're starting to get away from, you know, if you just have some college degree, it's, it's pretty honorable. That's mostly due to the college system kind of failing. But there are uh, obviously uh, vocational paths where College is necessary, and it's a win for everybody. But if it's honest labor and you make enough, you should be, you should be proud. You should be happy. Uh, and if you want to produce more, you should produce more. And so in kind of a, condition, uh, a community 
kind of, we have a very vocationally diverse community. And so um, when we look at one another, I don't think we should lift up necessarily someone with a PhD over someone with a fact, that's a factory worker, but we should just look at the teachings. Are they providing for their family? Are they producing enough income? And if they are, that's awesome. They're obeying scripture uh, with two different vocational paths. And so lastly, I'm gonna, I was going to spend more time on nurture because it really should spend more time on nurture. The last um, obligation of a husband is to nurture his wife. And so let's go back to Genesis 2.15. I'm going to read it out of the NASB. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it. And so we're looking at, at cultivation. The man is called to cultivate. Uh, he was, Adam was called to cultivate the garden. And besides the plants and animals in the garden, his wife was there. And so anything in the garden he was called to cultivate, which included his wife. And I actually believe that that primarily uh, was speaking about Eve. And so you have this horticulture metaphor where when you cultivate a garden, you're beautifying it. Anytime you go out to a garden and you're pruning or you're weeding or you're planting, it becomes more beautiful. And so it involves a lot of work. It involves a lot of planting, a lot of watering, uh, a lot of weeding, pruning, and then finally you get the harvest. And so... um, and, and so the Lord gives this metaphor, and he doesn't tell us exactly how to do it with our wives. He doesn't tell us exactly how to, how to nurture. He gives us instructions in, in, specific, in some things, but not specifically how to, how to live it out. But then he gives us direction. And so when you're nurturing your, your wife, it's more like cultivating a garden that takes a lot of time planting over and over and watering and weeding and pruning, and then you get the fruit. And uh, men generally don't have that much patience. They're like, oh, I did this, and I want this. I did this, and I want this. I I did A, you give me B. And that's not generally the way it works (laughs) with women uh, at all. And that's just perfectly how God designed it, and and it should be. And so it's it's, you have to weed the garden, you have to prune it, and then at the end of the season, you get the harvest. And so one of the ways to nurture a husband is called to nurture his wife specifically comes out of Ephesians 5, uh, 25 and 26, talking about washing them in the word. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of the water with the word. And so I think the first place a husband needs to nurture his wife is in the scriptures. There should be an atmosphere, whether, whether that's like, let's sit down and do a hard Bible study. That might be hard for your relationship. Uh, it might make your relationship harder if you do that. But it should be an atmosphere and a cultivation of the scriptures continually. And so when you, um, when you come across disagreements or problems, are you leading your wife into the scriptures? Are you leading her in, this is what the Lord has to say in this? <clears throat> or are, are you passively just uh, leaving it out? And that's because primarily the husband is the primary pastor of his wife and his kids. What you get from the pulpit is secondary. And so uh, the husband is the primary pastor to his wife. And so 
Uh, without getting in, in too much of the weeds, and if you look in 1 Corinthians 14, when it indicates that if a wife had a question at church, Paul goes so far as to say that, like our natural observation, but well, if, he, if she had a question about what the pastor said, she should just go to the pastor and ask him. Well, Paul says, go home and ask your husband. <laughs> ask him first. Don't, don't jump. Like, ask your husband theological questions because he's supposed to know. He's supposed to have the answers. And if he doesn't have the answers, he's got to find them out. And if he doesn't find them out, he is neglecting uh, his duty, right? And so husbands, however they do it, there's no prescribed, like, sit down on Tuesday nights and read the Bible together for an hour and pray for 10 minutes. There's no outline in Scripture that says you have to do it this way. But you have to do it. You have to lead your wife and wash her in the Word, whether that's, hey, let's sit down and, and talk about this thing biblically and, and let's work it out, or, or whether it's, you know, conversationally, you know what, you're, you're saying that, but it, I don't think that's what the Lord, I think there's like some scriptures about that, or, or whether it's bringing up an issue or, or whether there's no issue and you guys are just conversing and living your life, the word has to be regularly brought from the husband to his wife. That is the first way you nurture her. And that's just an, I think that's, and the Lord designed it, that, that, that it's an admonition of, I don't have the answers. I'm not the one who's going to, to actually give you peace. It's the Lord. I, all I'm doing in bringing you the scriptures is bringing you to the Lord, bringing you to the means of grace, that the Holy Spirit would activate them in you. I can't do a whole lot outside of that. And so, uh, husbands should have a, a high view and be thinking of how do I bring the word to my wife and to my family. And we're doing pressing it into the corners tonight. So if you want to ask questions about how do you do that, come tonight. And so part of that is, uh, and and that's really that's a really rough. If you don't do that, or if you're even when you're just getting married, getting into that is really rough sometimes. Because you have different understandings of scriptures, you have different expectations. Uh, but I think that is, uh, that is part of the joy, is that friction of working together to, uh, to, to receive the word and to give the word and to work it out. And it is rough, usually at the beginning, and it gets, gets easier over time. And so the next thing the husband is called to nurture his wife in is to not be harsh with her. Colossians 3.19 says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with, harsh with them. There you go. Don't be harsh with your wives. Uh, it's very easy to be harsh. And the opposite of harsh is being gentle. And so the command isn't just, as long as you're like, I don't think it goes, uh, you shouldn't be looking at them and say, well, I'm not harsh, but I'm not gentle either. I'm not, I'm not like physically rough with her or, or verbally rough with her, but I'm not like, I wouldn't say I'm nurturing her and, and gentle either. I don't think that's the room in the scriptures to be able to do that or to be in that position, you have to be gentle with them. And so you should have an overall demeanor of being gentle with your wife. Uh, one of the things God built in creation is women are just more fragile physically. Right? There's not, they're, not as, they're not big and burly. They're not hairy. At least I hope your wives, <laughs> I hope every single man, bless your heart, bless your life, don't get a woman who's big and burly and hairy. And so, uh, but if that, well, unless you, unless you want that, go for it. But whatever. 
But generally, women are not that way, and God built that into creation because they are meant to be cultivated and tended to and protected uh, by someone uh, who would be gentle with them. And that's hard, again, that's hard for men because we're usually rougher with one another. Uh, I was just talking with a, a friend the other day, is, and we were talking about, you know, we say from the pulpit that if you could live with like four or five guys, you could probably live with one woman, but it's still not the same. It's still, you're going to come across that your wife really doesn't like when you tease her and, and joke with her crudely. <laughs> she doesn't like to be razzed or, or, or egged on, but men do. Um, and, but that's part of not being harsh with her and being gentle. You have to switch your demeanor. You have to go against your nature to, to be gentle with your wife. And so lastly, uh, let's look at 1 Peter 3, 7. Um, the call for men to nurture their wives comes in here. <clears throat> it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of God, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so this, bring, this verse brings out husbands are commanded to do two things with their wives, which is live in an understanding way and show honor. And those are, uh, those are active verbs. Those, are, those aren't passive. You have to go out of your way to live in an understanding way. You have to ask a lot of questions. You have to get to know her. You can't live with her in an understanding way if you don't understand her. And you're not just, it's not just going to come to you. It really isn't. You're not just going to be like, yeah, I get her. We didn't even talk. And I just get it. It takes a lot of time talking, asking questions, probing. What do you think about this? What do you, like, when, when I said that, what did you think I said? What did you think I meant? Can I say it differently? Right? So you have to, uh, you have to ask a lot of questions. You have to continue to get to know her. Uh, there's, I don't know which comedian, there's, well, there's probably several, but there's, um, you could search and with your wife, the most intimate person you're going to know your whole life, and you can search to know her and know what she's thinking and what's going through her head. You can ask her and, and do that for hours a day, and you still won't know a whole lot. You still won't just quite get it. They're so different and so complex from us that you just have to keep searching. You have to keep trying to live in an understanding way. <clears throat> and so that second one, showing honor, is, is we're going to end on that, is what I honestly think is overlooked, as far as I can tell, in our modern complementarianism, is the mandate that husbands are to show honor to their wives. I think this, this mandate right here in this verse is so overlooked in our Christian culture that, it, that it's kind of crazy. And so there's a difference between uh, being respectful and showing honor. But I think this verse shows, is a saying that men need to go out of their way to show honor to their wives, right? And so that doesn't just happen. You have to be intentional. Uh, it should be as regular and as intentional as washing her in the word and, and as intentional as being gentle. That means husbands need to have a disposition of showing honor. And so we think that honor generally lies in our hearts, but it doesn't. There's nothing that lies in our hearts for too long that doesn't come out of our hands. And so if you can't point to ways that you physically show honor to your wife, you don't honor her. There's no way around it. You can't say, I, I love her and honor her in my heart, but uh, I don't 
there's no way I can point that, that, that it comes into reality, then you don't. You just simply don't. And so uh, to sh- kind of show far, to show you how far culture has come, our own culture, American culture, from a biblical expression of this in our society, it used to be common, in, especially in formal events, that when a woman came in the room, all the men would stand. That was normal. Everybody knew it. When a woman came to the table, every man would get up to show her honor and you know help her with her um, help her with her with her chair, and and so uh, that's not normal anymore. That was built into our society and a biblical expo- ex- expression of showing honor to women, but we don't have that anymore. And nobody, as far as I know, grew up in a culture that actually honored women normally and physically in their cultural system. Now your family might have done a better or worse job, but, but what you have to do, and again, the Bible doesn't prescribe how to do it, it just prescribes you have to do it, right? You have to show honor to your wife. And so I think you need to work honor into your family system. That means opening the car door for her, uh, help her put her coat on, stand when she sits at the table, uh, help her with her seat, Make your children say thank you if she made the meal every time. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Every time. Um, when Don't eat until she takes the first bite. Right? If that's built into your family, your children are going to pick it up much more than, than anybody else. And so also, when you work in honor to your family system, it means I'm going to do this whether we're fighting or whether we're in a spat or not. And um, uh, one of the things I, I did with Noelle was like, I'm going to promise to not do anything while we're dating or courting that I'm not going to do while we're married. So you probably missed out on some things that, that most girls get when the guy's like, I'm going to show you, I'm going to go extra and beyond. Well, I'm not going to go extra and beyond. I'm just going to give you what I got. And that's what you're going to get every day. And so uh, I open the car door for her all the time, and, and she'll sit there, and if I forget, she'll just like, I'll be like, oh, yeah, sorry. I'm like, I got to get out of the car. I got to walk around. I got to go and open up your car door. And then you can try to, I'm sorry. That's my fault. Because uh, we've built that into our family because just just show honor. Because but for no other reason, just to, because she is the weaker vessel and not because she needs me to open the door. She has an arm and she can do it, but she, she deserves the honor. And when you work it into your, your family system, you do it whether you're on good terms or whether you're on bad terms. And the Bible doesn't prescribe what to do, but that you have to do it. And so every man should be thinking about how do I really show honor uh, to my wife? And so consequently, when you get down and, and you have children, you're going to be teaching your children to honor and respect women by how they honor and respect their mother. And if there's no direct like, correlation, like you have to say thank you every meal, you have to do this, and you got to do this, and that's how you treat your mother, then there's really no way that they're learning to respect them or to, to honor them. And so what I think men want to ask is, can your children, can other people learn by your example, or are you being a, a hypocrite? And so... We tend to think that those things are like, like yeah, that they, they, our children see them 
but it's probably like every couple of months we're out in public and I'm opening the car door for Noel and some woman says, good man, good man, you keep doing that. Uh, and because people see it, people see it. And if every Christian did it, if every man did that for their wife, if every man started to show honor publicly in, in real ways, then uh, we might be a little bit closer to, to being lights of the world and having a biblical understanding of, uh, of men and women. And so we'll close there. Uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that uh, you would activate your word by your Holy Spirit in our heart to change our lives, to change our mind and change our lives. Lord, as we come to worship, let's worship let us worship you vibrantly, loudly, and energetically through Jesus Christ. Amen.